You certainly don't want to be the only one yeah. sort of not doing the basic things that you need to do. Having that documented will help you in the long run because eventually you will be subject to one of these privacy laws. Startup founders today need to comply with a variety of privacy regulations. Even if you're a non-tech startup, you're probably still going to have a website, and that website will be subject to GDPR regulations in Europe, CCPA regulations in California, and U.S. federal COPA law. It can be a bewildering set of regulations for startup founders to navigate. Joining me today to discuss making this a little bit easier are two expert attorneys from Foley & Laudner, Stephanie Webb and Steve Millendorf. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Joining me today to discuss this stuff are two, uh, two experts in the field. First of all, Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, Brett. Give us the brief background around yourself. Oh, sure. I am in-house counsel for Wasabi Technologies, um, a hot cloud storage company doing a uh, you know, quicker and faster and uh, cheaper than the competitors out there. Um, I'm a generalist attorney. I'm um, the only in-house attorney right now for Wasabi. So my work ranges from um, contract negotiations on the customer and vendor side, lots of privacy work, HR work, sort of runs the gamut. And uh, Wasabi is an actual unicorn, correct? You got it. Valuation of over $1 billion, baby. That's yes, very exciting. <laughs> also, also joining us is Steve. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going? Good. Give us the background on yourself. Yeah, so I'm Steve Millendorf. I'm a partner at Foley and Larger. Most of my practice is privacy and cybersecurity. Um, counts for about two-thirds, maybe a little bit more of that. The rest of it is technology transactions, which, of course, there's there's an overlap between the two because there's hardly a, a technology transaction these days that doesn't involve some form of data. I'm a reformed engineer. That's the way I like <laughs> to put it. Uh, I was an engineer for 24 years prior to uh, to transitioning into law, mostly um, acting in privacy and cybersecurity architecture space. My my last gig prior to um, to starting a Foley, I was the hardware security lead at Qualcomm for uh, five out of the seven years that I was there, uh, and then um, moved into what they call government technology. So basically, a government contractor uh, helping um, various entities in the U.S. government to um, secure mobile communications. So you're a lawyer who can actually talk geek talk. I can, uh, and I think part of uh, part of my practice, um, which I think kind of sets me apart a little bit, is um, you know being able to talk to the engineers and interface right. with the general counsel and kind of really understand you know what's going on and help direct some of the technology if I need to to comply with various laws. Right, right, right. That's great. So Stephanie and Steve, you know, I remember the good old days of the internet where. You could just post anything you want. You could grab anybody's email address you wanted. You could spam them all day long. You could collect their personal data. It's a little different now. There's a whole whole host of laws we have to comply with. And uh, every website I go to now, I got to click that damn accept cookies thing. I'm so, I'm so tired of that thing. So can you can you guys make that go away? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so let's keep thinking that one. Um, you know, the... The requirement is really comes from GDPR, um, and it actually comes from a little bit of an offshoot of GDPR, which is the old the privacy directive. Hey, hey, Steve, maybe give the brief uh, explanation of GDPR. Yeah, so GDPR is a European privacy law, 
Um, unlike a lot of the laws, which you kind of alluded to a little earlier in the U.S., where we've got these kind of sectoral laws where it's a very specific sector of the economy yeah. or a very specific purpose, um, it's, it's broad-based, right? It's all about any type of personal information, no matter what the subject is. One of the requirements in there is the idea that you only use the information for the purposes that you for the, for the limited purposes that you need it for. And there's a, a corollary law, which is the old privacy directive. It's actually become a regulation in um, in the UK um, called the PACR. That if you put any sort of software tracking information, anything like that, on somebody's device, you have to get explicit consent. Um, and that's where the cookie consent pop-up comes from. Um, now, you only have to do it once, um, but we have a lot of U.S. companies who are subject to, um, to GDPR for one reason or another. Or have well, we've recently seen companies who have gotten claims against them for GDPR, even though they're not subject to it. Um, and so that's why we're seeing a lot of these cookie consent managers pop up, even for you know, what is typically a U.S. website. Um, it also has a little bit of overlap in the, in the U.S., um, particularly under California, CCPA, and, and what will soon be CPRA. Uh, there's a concept of selling your personal information, and selling is defined really broadly, and, and which would include analytics and advertising cookies, which, of mm-hmm. course, a lot of websites use. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is if somebody actively says, yes, you can, you can do it, which would mean actively saying, yes, you can put cookies on my machine, that may not be a sale. But even if it is considered a sale, well, how do you opt out of selling the information which would be a requirement under CPRA? Well, if the only way that you're selling it is through cookies, then the only way that you can opt out is through stopping the cookies, mm-hmm. which is the cookie consent manager again. So, Steve, you mentioned GDPR, which is a European thing. Correct. And this, of course, is part of the complication with all these things is that there's all these different geographies and jurisdictions around the world. And so which ones do you have to comply with, which ones you don't? So if I'm a a company in the U.S., I assume that my website may well have visitors from Europe. Right. So so does that mean that I have to be GDPR compliant, even though I'm a company here in California? Absolutely not. It's not a requirement, um, which is a good thing. Um, so the requirements under GDPR to, to, to be within the scope of GDPR is you either have an establishment in the European Union. Um, and, and by the way, every time I say European Union, this now applies to UK because Brexit. You've got to duplicate yeah. everything. I heard about um, that. But uh, yeah, um, so, so having an establishment in Europe, I would see you there, but if you're a US um, startup, you, you don't have that. Um, offering you goods and services to people in the European Union. Um, and that sounds really broad, but there's some guidance that would suggest that um, you have to actually be intending to have people in the European Union access your website. Um, so if you're just a, a U.S. company, you know, I, I would like to use the example of a taco shop in Kansas. Sure, somebody from Europe can go and access that website. There's no restrictions. But they're really not expecting somebody in, in Europe to go and access the website. So that would take you out of having to be compliant with GDPR. Let me just say, Steve, that I love taco shop metaphors. You're, <laughs> you're, you're talking my language now. I'm in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> 
every big corner. <laughs> so, so Stephanie, you're you're in-house counsel for a cloud uh, uh, a cloud service platform, which means you've got a whole kind of chain of compliance uh, issue thing going on. Meaning, you have some direct clients, and you have to be the company has some direct customers, and so you got to make sure that you are compliant with regard to them. Also, sometimes your customers have customers who are on technology platform, technology services that your company is providing. And sometimes you're integrating third-party software into your platform and you need to make sure that it's compliant so that you're compliant so that your customers are compliant. <laughs> this sounds, sounds like a lawyer make-work scheme here. Sure. Well, like I said, it's a it's a big part of my job because there's, there's just so much out there. I think I, I read the other day that there's 107 countries have passed privacy and security-related <laughs> laws. Um, it's just a full-time job to try to keep up with the daily changes. And then, like you said, we, as in-house counsel, I, I'm looking at different things. So I'm looking at, um, you know, data that that Wasabi is collecting. So data that we hold about our employees or data that we collect, um, you know, from visitors on our website. Um, and then, and then there's separate data that we hold for our customers and uh, the supply chain issues there. What vendors do we use? What um, third-party platforms do we integrate with? So all of those things. So there's um, there's just lots of considerations out there, lots of different laws to try to keep up with, and they're keeping us busy. <laughs> so, to both of you, uh, so if I'm a startup founder today, and you know, I'm just, you know, we've got we've got the early stuff going, meaning, meaning we've got a website and an email list and, and, and we're building the product. You know, what advice would you give me as a new startup founder in terms of making sure that I, um, that I'm paying attention to all this stuff? So I think, um, there's, there's sort of two, um, two buckets of advice that I would give. And the first is to really spend the time to understand the product or the service that you're offering. And that means, you know, working with the engineers, working with um, the product management team, working with the customer support team to figure out how, um, how data is being handled. What data are you collecting? Where is it going? Um, you know, how is it, is it data of value? And, and if not, do you not need to be collecting it? Um, it's just going to give you more headaches than it's worth. Um, who has access to it? And then second, once you have a really good understanding of that is when you're building your systems um, from the beginning is to, I would say, focus on um, transparency and minimization. So minimize the data that you're collecting if you can. You know, don't, you know, minimize who has access to it. If you're holding data and you have 200 employees, there's probably very little reason that all 200 employees need access to, yeah, you know, right, HR right. data or customer data. Maybe yeah. it's just limited to the HR team or the customer support team. So figure out ways to minimize those um, interactions, both in how you're collecting and holding the data and then who has access to it. And then the second part is just be transparent, you know, be transparent with your employees, be transparent with your customers about the data that you are collecting and um, and and what you're doing with it. Like like Steve said earlier, kind of you know use it for the reasons that you're disclosing. Right, Steve. And I would say you know from day one, kind of consider your security posture and, and kind of what your security protocols are going to be. Um, not just for the privacy space, but for your intellectual property. Right, as a startup, um, even before you've 
collected anybody's information except maybe employees, you're going to be developing a product and presumably you're going to have some competitive advantage or you want to, um, and making sure that that is not subject to various forms of espionage that we see in the industry right now, uh, whether it's nation state, whether it's, it's somebody else, making sure that you've got that secured. And then once the product actually launches, same thing, right? It is the worst situation that you want to be in is, is a startup, you're still growing, and your product is down um, because you've been victim to a ransomware attack or some other type of a situation. Right. Um, so I think that would be the starting point. And of course, we, the privacy-related security all leverages off of that too, right? If you start having the firewalls and everything to protect your IP, you're going to have those same firewalls or at least similar firewalls to protect your personal information. And then to echo a little bit what Stephanie said is, you know, knowing what data you're collecting and why you're collecting it and not collecting stuff that you don't need and where all it's going, starting that from day one and having that documented will help you in the long run because eventually you will be subject to one of these these privacy laws. Um, you know, GDPR doesn't have any threshold other than the ones that I mentioned on whether or not you've got an establishment or you're offering your services or monitoring people in Europe. California CPRA does. It's a there's a financial threshold of $25 million, which you know, hopefully every startup makes it that far and and has that. Some of the other state laws that we've seen are more volume thresholds, 100,000 people in, in yeah. some way, shape, or form. But understanding what your personal information is, when you have to start applying those data subject rights of deleting the information, well, how can you delete it if you don't know where it is and what you got? Um, right. Having access to it, correcting it, you know, all of those data subject rights are going to stem from knowing that upfront. Um, from day one, instead of having to try to back annotate it in later, and putting those engineering efforts in place early, even if you don't activate them, um, but having the ability to delete the information um, or access the information or whatever the right is, planning for that yeah. upfront will go a long way instead of having to figure it out of like, oh crap, now we're subject to GDPR. Right. Now what? <laughs> yeah. And Brett, just one other thing. Um, yeah. I would say, you know, think about who your target customer is, um, both kind of in geography and just in terms of the size of the kind of customer that you're going to go after. Like Steve mentioned, um, you know, if you're going after only U.S. customers, you're, you know, in one state and you're sort of not planning on expanding beyond that, that's going to require a, a different sort of privacy and security um, program as a whole than if you're planning to go hire a bunch of salespeople in Europe and and um, you know, move into other jurisdictions, and then same for the for the kinds of companies that you're going to go after. If you're a B two B company, um, I think we all know that sort of enterprise level customers are um, require a, just a whole um, different set of resources, and they're going to really drive a lot of these decisions that you're making early on. You know, enterprise level customers and customers subject to the GDPR are going to insist on things like ISO certifications, SOC 2 certifications, you know, the ability to answer a, a 1500 question RFP um, about your security and privacy practices. And if you're kind of not set up to, um, you know, to handle those sort of requests and those sort of negotiations, you know, it's really, you know, you're not going to be successful in, in sort of landing those kind of customers. And so yeah. giving that thought ahead of time and sort of knowing what you're stepping into, I think, um, is important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point is, you know, there's 
I've talked about, you know, when you're subject to GDPR or CPRA or any of those, but there's also the reinfection aspect of it, as I like to term it, where your customers are subject to it. And because they're subject to it, you know, they can't just pass the buck and say, okay, well, we don't have to do anything because we hired a vendor to do it. They're going to pass those obligations down to you um, and making sure that you can handle it by knowing what your customer base is or potentially will be in maybe the next year or so, whatever it comes out to be can go a long way when you're starting the company. And Steve, you mentioned uh, uh, the ability to delete customer data for, for a customer to delete their own data. So uh, uh, I know an entrepreneur who recently had their app rejected by the Apple App Store because they had functionality for a customer to close their account, but they didn't have functionality for a customer to also delete all of, the, all of their data. Mm-hmm. And there's a requirement from the Apple Store um, particularly, it's not necessarily a, a legal requirement, but Apple has imposed that um, as a requirement that you should be able to close the account through the app and have the information that's associated with it deleted. But then, you know, again, we do get into CPRA and all those other ones where upon request, however that request necessarily comes in, you may have an, an obligation to delete it with a lot of exceptions. So you're allowed to anonymize it. Deletion doesn't necessarily mean delete and that's wipe it. out the record. Yeah. But obviously, if you have to keep it for a legal hold or, or some other um, obligation, you're allowed to do that. Of course, you have to tell the customer why you're not following the request. All of these data subject rights that come up in all of these, uh, these various privacy laws do have exceptions. They're not completely absolutist. Um, and that's something to keep in mind, too. So if anybody in our audience has any questions for our expert guests today, just type them there in the chat box. It will get to as many of them as possible. Steve, you mentioned anonymized uh, data. And so there's this concept of PII, personally identifiable information, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about about that and how that fits in. Yeah, so it's, depending on the law that we're talking about, it's a a different term. Um, PII, I associate with kind of the the old style personal information where it's your name, it's your address, it's your social security number. The modern definition that we see in GDPR and some of the some of the state laws is a little bit broader. It's any information that that is identifiable or could be identified, um, right. and in some cases could be linked to an individual or an identifiable individual. And again, that's it's a lo- it's a lot broader than it sounds. For example, um, cookies, right, um, or some sort of a personal identifier mm-hmm. or a unique identifier on a, on a mobile device. If you can identify that it's the same guy twice, that is considered personal data under these under these statutes. Oh. Um, and so, again, way broader than I don't know know it's Joe Smith, but I know it's the same guy twice, uh, um, yeah. and yeah. I can identify him and build a profile on him and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's personal information or personal data, um, and that would be subject to GDPR, CPRA, all these all these various state laws. And it, but it does have to be reasonable. And so if, if you anonymize it in a way that I can't reasonably identify it's the same guy. So example, you know, the unique identifier, if I truncate it, that there's, there's a thousand, you know, people who might have the last four digits, that's fine. And so you have to analyze, you know, what, what other information do I have and can I reasonably link it up to the same guy again? And if the answer is no, you've successfully anonymized it uh, and you're meeting the, the requirements under the statute. Interesting. So I always tell my 
Stanford students that, uh, you know, running a startup is hard enough as it is. Don't, don't make it harder by getting into trouble with the regulators. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier to stay out of trouble than it is to, uh, you know, deal, deal with, uh, with investigations for the regular regulators and potential fines. And, right. you know, you want to be spending all of your effort, you know, growing your company and taking care of customers, not, uh, responding to, uh, to regulators. So again, I'm kind of circling back around on original question about what, you know, what can startup founders do to make sure they're clean on as many fronts as possible. Um, and of course, you know, most startups don't, you know, are working on constrained budgets, so they can't sign an engagement letter with Foley and Laudner saying, you know, just do all the privacy stuff for me. <laughs> we could do that very efficiently. <laughs> um, and, and obviously there's, there's alternative due arrangements and things like that, but, um, I would make sure that they're dealing with the regulatory environment that they're going to be operating in again, kind of earlier rather than later. Um, whether that involves a compliance officer, whether that involves you know hiring an outside law firm, you know even an outside law firm, you know, like I can I can answer a couple of questions or I can draft all of your your policies, right, and, and anywhere in between. It so it really depends on you know what's the appropriate thing for the company. And I've worked with startups where, you know what, it's an hour conversation and, you know, I don't hear from them until they, they hit unicorn status. And I've had other clients that, you know, hey, I'm involved in, you know, day one, they want all the policies and procedures drafted and put into place and they'd like me to draft it. Yeah, you know, like I've done ones where they've drafted it and I just look at it and say, okay, yeah, that, that, that looks appropriate or maybe we want to tweak this or whatever it necessarily needs to be. And you, and you mentioned privacy policy, which is that's for, for many startups, that's kind of the first, that's the first place is they know they need to develop some sort of privacy policy and, and it should public. be something, something, uh, something it should be linked, linked to from the website, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, despite talking about thresholds and GDPR and CPRA and all that, there's the old California um, Online Privacy Act, uh, which goes back to 2003, 2004 timeframe, mm-hmm. which requires a privacy notice on any online site or, or um, application. And that has some specific requirements in it. Um, so yes, at the bare minimum, having a privacy notice um, that complies with those obligations should be day one. And uh, so I just do a quick Google search, find somebody else's privacy policy and put it on my website. Is that what I do? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the days of, of kind of... Um, yeah, one size that's all privacy policies are gone. Uh, yeah. They've been gone a long time. Yeah. Um, it should be tailored to what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that a privacy notice is essentially a contract between the, the company and the individual who's who got the inf- who's given the information. And you know, just like anything else, any other contract, you don't want to breach it. And so, if you say you're doing ABC in, in the privacy notice particularly you're not maybe doing ABC and you actually are, that's a problem. And that can be enforced under, uh, under the FTC, which is the Federal, you know, F- Federal Trade Commission um, Act. And I can't remember what year that is, but um, basically they, they have the ability to, um, to regulate unfair and deceptive practices. And they have made various determinations over the last 15 or so years that core security practices is considered an unfair and deceptive practice and not disclosing something that should have been disclosed in a privacy notice or saying something in a privacy notice that's wrong 
um, is an unfair and deceptive practice. And every state has a similar law. California, it's it's uh, business and profession code seventeen two hundred. Other states have very similar ones, and the um, the FTC is very active in enforcing it. I'd say, depending on the state, the state uh, attorney generals are pretty active in enforcing that as well. Mm-hmm. And individuals may have a right of private action under a lot of those states as well. Mm-hmm. So that's even more of a problem to get, you know, mm-hmm. a bunch of class action people who want to file a, a, a litigation. Do either of you have any experience with uh, with kids? That um, I think that if you have users under thirteen, that kicks in some federal stuff. I do. Um, so that's COPPA, um, right. um, which is which is a federal law. Um, also goes back, God, probably twenty years or so. And that's interesting. So that's children under thirteen. And um, if you collect information about a child, or actually from a child, um, so it's not necessarily about a child. It's from a child under thirteen. And that also includes, again, kind of unique identifiers and things like that. It doesn't have to be named and everything. Yeah. You need verifiable parental consent. Uh, verifiable parental notice, consent. Yeah. yeah. Which the FTC has very specific ways that you can get that. Um, things like, you know, uh, a one penny charge to a credit card or actually like a video conference to verify that it's the parent and not some really smart child who's actually you know, making them sound like they're the parent. <laughs> and then under California, we now have the new um, California Child Design Privacy Act. I think that's what it's called. It just got passed um, two, three weeks ago, um, which is also going to have similar requirements, but it's for children under 18. Um, oh. and, oh. and expands that even more of, you know, you have to consider the harm that could be imposed to the child based on the information that they're collecting and you have to design things around that. So even that's, you know, recently, um, the, the bar is going up, um, even these, these old things that we thought were settled a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So Stephanie, does Wasabi have any, uh, customers dealing with health, you know, health data such that there's HIPAA issues? We do. Yeah. We've got, um, yeah, customers that kind of run the gamut and, um, you know, from all, all different uh, sectors of the economy that store, store data with us. And can you talk at all about the, uh, about the HIPAA stuff? So um, we, have a, we have a compliance officer that kind of really... Um, focuses on that. Focuses, yeah, not just on, on HIPAA, but um, other sort of regulatory schemes that affect the, the services mm-hmm. themselves. Um, there's really specific security rules um, specifically for HIPAA, mm-hmm. um, for HIPAA data and kind of the controls um, and the audits that you have to be able to pass um, to process HIPAA data. And then there's also contract considerations, you know, specialized BAA contracts and, and things like that that have to be in place. It is, you know, a bit of an undertaking to sort of go down that path of becoming a, a processor of uh, specialized data like HIPAA data or, you know, data from the federal government or sort of these, you know, unique sets of data beyond just the general bucket of personal data. So, you know, th- there's so much domain expertise that is that is required, right? You know, I mean, you just mentioned having, you know, that you've got, you know, compliance officers, that that's all they focus on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And again, that circles back to my question about, you know, how the hell do early stage founders um, deal with this when they can't, you know, they can't afford to have Stephanie in house. Um, You know, do you have any thoughts on 
resources that they can turn to? Or is it just make, you know, make sure you're doing your due diligence, make sure you spend, spend time reading these regulations, figure out which ones apply to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it is table stakes these days. I mean, there has to be due consideration given to security and privacy issues. That's, that's unavoidable. Um, but sort of how much you want to take on at the early stages is, is within your control, right? Like, how do you want to grow your business? Do you want to, um, allow, customers that have HIPAA data, that that's going to be a big undertaking, or are you going to just not go after those customers? And, you know, you put something in your contract around warranties that um, a customer isn't going to, um, you know, put HIPAA data on your platform or send it through your services, that kind of thing. Um, Are you going to, you know, focus on organic growth within the U.S. first, um, you know, before you expand to Europe? I would say, you know, some of that stuff is, is in your control about sort of how fast and um, wild you want to grow your business and then begin, you know, you, you need some sort of resource, either inside counsel or, um, you know, uh, outside counsel like Foley or um, there's different resources you can use uh, sort of depending on what level of program you're going to undertake. And, uh, you know, we kind of joked about copying um, a privacy policy that's out there. You definitely don't want to do that. But I do think it is useful to sort of look at what your industry peers are doing. Um, You know, if you're a a one-year-old startup and you've got 35 employees, you don't need to have the privacy program that Apple has, right? Like that's, nobody expects that. Um, But you do need to sort of keep your eye on on what your industry peers are doing. And you you certainly don't want to be the only one yeah. sort of not doing the basic things that you need to do. So, you know, look around. Do they have um, just a, a privacy notice or do they have a DPA out there? Do they have information sort of about their general privacy practices and sort of see like, what are industry best practices um, that can help guide a little bit in terms of the scope of the program that you want to develop internally? Right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great tip. You know, take a take a look at the. I mean, every every startup has, you know, peers out there in the marketplace that do approximately what they do. So, you know, look at look at two or three of them. See what their privacy policy is. See what the things they have in place. I think that's a really good tip. Really good tip. Yeah, I mean, I think knowing the market is is obviously important. But you know, as Stephanie said, you know, knowing knowing what industry you're you're going to be operating in um, is also really helpful, right? I mean, there. I'm sure there are plenty of startups that will never touch HIPAA data, right? It's just not part of what they do, right? They're not, they're not cloud storage providers like Wasabi and like, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're doing whatever. Um, and so they don't need a business associate agreement, right? They don't have to deal with HIPAA stuff, but they may be subject to some other privacy laws like, like CPRA or GDPR or something. Right. I'd also say, you know, check with the regulators that, you know, for example, Cal, you know, the California state website has pretty good information on it about uh, California privacy law. So, you know, check with yeah. the regulators. It's free. You know, they'll give you free advice. Might as well look at what they what they have available. Yeah, to the extent that it's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I understand. I would, I would <laughs> say some of the, uh, you know, I'm looking at the regulations for CPRA and it's, um, it's not easily read, I'll say a, it's not a page turner, and B, <laughs> right. you might have been doing quantum mechanics uh, for some of the language that they've got in there. Right, right, right. But some of them do a pretty, pretty decent job of 
Yeah, have, have, is, having material that'll help you get up to speed on generally what it's about. Yeah, the, the FTC does too. Um, you know, at the federal level, you know, all things like HIPAA and everything is regulated by by separate entities. A lot of kind of the general, you know, consumer, I would say, um, privacy, security, you know, type regulations are are regulated by the FTC. Um, and so, to use your example earlier, things like COPPA, um, the, the children's online privacy stuff. Is, is regulated by the FTC. Um, and they've got some pretty decent pages and, and FAQs on this is how it applies, this is what you have to do, you know, no, you can't do this, yes, you can do that. They're very helpful in some of those things. So so last question for you guys is, uh, what's on the horizon? Is there any, uh, <laughs> any, reg- you know, any kind of regulation that's in the pipeline that, that is expected? Uh, it's a constantly changing areas i think we've mentioned earlier breach notification laws started in california in, in 2004 and it took roughly 14 years for it to make it across every jurisdiction in the u.s uh, yeah. with alabama being the last one ccpa um was enacted in 2018 went into effect 2020 we've now seen well we've now seen ccpa be replaced by cpra as part of a ballot initiative uh, mm-hmm. last year um, we've seen four other states um, now pass laws that are associated with it. And at one point, I think I had counted something like 23 states had proposed um, yeah. down similar to it, you know, and, and some of them have been reproposed. And Michigan just um, proposed a new one last week. And so I would expect that we will see more states have proposals for um, and probably pass privacy laws that are similar yet different than California. Um, I am not particularly hopeful about the federal privacy law. Yeah, that's um, great. Let's get my next. Let's get my next question was: Are the, yeah, feds, are the, I, fed, are the feds ever going to unify this? I doubt it. I mean, they haven't unified the, the breach notification stuff. And if you yeah. get a breach, it's it's kind of a pain if it's if it's nationwide. Um, you know, I I think the preemption thing, which you've probably heard, is is going to continue to be a challenge. And as long as there's going to be a challenge to preemption, you're still going to have every state law that's going to apply and, and maybe raise the bar from the floor that the federal law passes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that the federal law has made it as far as it has, to be honest. Um, you know, there are six or seven different committees in the House that all think that they own privacy and they all compete with each other. So I'm surprised they even got as far as coming to some sort of uh, an agreement to what they got. But I think it's going to be a long time before we see a federal GDPR. It would be great if they did for no other reason. If they make it at least close to GDPR, it would make things like transferring information from Europe so much easier than it is now, assuming that it it got an adequacy decision. But I think we're years off. So I would look for more states. I would look for more states, not only doing the general one that we've you know, seen in California, Colorado, Virginia, Connecticut, Utah, but probably a few more of these sectoral ones. I think, we, I think social media has got crosshairs. Um, yeah. and, they're, and they're probably going to have... That may actually have a federal law at one level or another. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to see more states do that. And I think the... The children's one that was just enacted in California is also going to be the tip of the iceberg, mostly yeah. generated from things like Instagram and TikTok, and again, kind of more of the social media company yeah. that they're, yeah. they're targeting. 
Well, speaking so speaking of which, uh, yesterday we got the news that Section 230 is going to go to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, which isn't privacy specifically, but it certainly is part of this whole general thing you mentioned, Steve, about social media companies being in the in the crosshairs of the regulators right now. And, and yeah, <laughs> they're they going to still be an exception um, as a as an internet service provider instead of an internet content provider. Right, 230 is outdated. <laughs> it's. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we'll have a we, we should have a separate we should, we should have a separate panel on that one because that's a whole different topic. But it's a big yeah. juicy it's a big juicy topic. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Last question, Stephanie. What keeps you up at night? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll answer this a little cheesy, which is you know not not too much because I have the support of a really really right. great business team that cares about this stuff, and and so to the extent that I I sort of you know, see scary stuff out there. Um, I've, I've got the support of the business and and they're behind me to help a- address it. So, um, there you, go. you know, nice. it's, it's just sort of the uh, daily task of keeping up with everything is, is difficult. But um, yeah. once I've identified it, uh, I've got a great, a great team and we're yeah. working towards getting all this stuff right. So that's a nice, warm, fuzzy answer. I like that. <laughs> so Steve, what do you, what do you recommend your clients think about in the middle of the night? <laughs> um, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think again, you know, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Is you know, what is the nature of their business, and how do these things apply to them? And sometimes it gets down to get a little bit of a reasonable reasonableness standard. I think some of the regulations that we've seen recently, they're clearly written by people who don't have a tech background and maybe mm-hmm. don't understand the industry. Unfortunately, sometimes it's like, look, we've got to make best efforts to comply here, but we're not going to be 100% compliant because nobody is ever going to be 100% compliant with these yeah. somewhat ridiculous requirements sometimes. Okay. All right. Well, Stephanie and Steve, thank you so much for doing this. You can find me and Stephanie and Steve. You can find all of us on LinkedIn. Uh, so please reach out to us if we can, uh, if we can help in any way. And uh, thanks so much for joining. Uh, Stephanie and Steve, again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having thank me. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you'd like what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to share and review this show. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks for listening.